1993, we were considered missionaries by the network that your church is a part of, that all of our churches are a part of, that, that I currently lead here in New England. And so we went there, and we were in this little mountain village with one paved street. Now, I'm a city person, so imagine what it was like to move to a village with one paved street. I used to tell people that if you left the church parking lot, which was three, like, it wasn't really a parking lot, it was a place for three cars, but we called it a parking lot, and if you turned right left and you went 35 miles to the stop sign and then turned left again, you'd see the highway. And people would always laugh, and I would have to say, I'm not joking. <laughs> it was 35 miles to the stop sign. It was a rural mountain village. So we were there for eight years as missionaries, and God did some wonderful things there. Uh, but about year three of our experience there, we were on our way into the big town next door, which was 12,000 people. That was the big town next door, but they had a grocery store. So we were all going into town, and we are going to go uh, do some errands, and we are going to go to McDonald's to eat. That was like the big place there to eat, you know, good French cuisine. They had French fries. Anyway, and then we're going to stop by the hospital and visit one of the men who had had some kind of surgery. <coughs> well, being a mountain town, uh, this particular, there was one particular spot where for about two miles, there's just a cliff on one side and sort of mountain wall on the other. And it was right in that spot uh, when a lady named Barbara Lyons, who was drunk, uh, hit us head on in a horrific accident. Uh, it was a terrible, terrible experience. It was 11 o'clock in the morning. Uh, she had already drank an entire fifth of vodka. She'd had two beers and a couple of drinks at a friend's house and had just opened a second fifth of vodka and began sipping on it when she got over into our lane and smacked into us. Uh, when the paramedics arrived, um, uh, it was pretty bad. Uh, my, my wife's arm was all messed up, and she's not here today, so I can talk about her. Uh, but if you look at her arm, which please don't stare at it next week, but you'll see some pretty long scars. She has some stuff in there, lots of plates and screws and things like that. And she's had to learn how to open a doorknob. Her, her arm no longer does this, so she has to actually turn her arm like this and grab it like that to get the doorknob to open. Uh, it's difficult for her to go through a drive through window because she doesn't have all the things that, uh, anyway, her arm doesn't work very well, uh, but it's there. Um, in my own life, uh, my leg, my right leg was all messed up. Actually, they told me they were first going to have to amputate it, uh, so it was pretty mangled. It was pretty bad, uh, but after lots and lots of surgery and nine months of physical therapy, I'm happy to say it is still attached <laughs> and works fairly well, but I know when it's going to rain long before it rains. The doctor told me back then, and when I was like, I was like, I don't know, 30 years old, he said, oh, he said, you have a leg of a 55-year-old. And I thought, well, that's not so bad. I mean, I know lots of 55-year-olds who are doing great. He said, yeah, the problem is, is when you're 55, you're going to have the leg of an 85-year-old. Well, I haven't quite got to 55 yet, but I'm pretty sure I got that leg already. Um, but without question, the worst uh, injuries were sustained by my son, who was four years old and was in the back seat. Um, his back was broken. Um, he had massive internal injuries from where the seat belt, you know, which saved his life but also messed a lot of things up. We got to this little hospital there in our area, and there was no way they could handle his particular situation. And so they told us they were going to send him to a pediatric intensive care unit, which was in New Hampshire. And they told us, we want you to say goodbye to him because the chances of seeing him again alive are pretty much zero. And suddenly all hope in our life was gone. To think that our four-year-old child might die in a different state and I wouldn't even be able to be with him was a really awful moment. And for four days, his life did hang in the balance. And I know we have some medical people here, so uh, this is a story you want to share with all of your medical friends. Uh, at the end of the four days, after them keep trying to figure out what surgery they were going to do and what they were going to put back together and what they could sew together and all that kind of stuff, they came to my wife and they said, we cannot understand it and we cannot explain it, but his back is still broken, but all the stuff on the inside has gone back into the right places where it belongs, and 
we're not going to have to do surgery after all. The doctor, who was definitely an atheist, said, I do not believe in miracles, but if there was ever a miracle that I could believe in, it would be that somebody has done something to your son that doctors cannot do. Um, he was in a body cast for four months. Uh, when he got out of the body cast, we wondered what would happen. Would he be partially paralyzed? Would he have... Uh, would he require more surgeries because one of his growth plates on one of his vertebrae was broken? There was all kinds of, of what-ifs and possibilities. And so we, we got him out of the body cast, and, uh, you know, he went to the physical, first physical therapy session, and, and it was a room filled with equipment and stuff. And the, <coughs> the, the lady who was the physical therapist said, so what do you want to do? Well, this is a, you know, he's a four-year-old boy that finally got this body cast off. He saw this big, giant, inflatable ball-like thing, and he ran and jumped on it and started flipping around and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And she looked at us and said, I don't think he's going to need to come back. <laughs> um, several months later, when he finished all of the various tests that they wanted to do on him, uh, a different doctor who was also an atheist uh, from Dartmouth-Hitchcock Hospital, we were in the very last appointment where they had done some, some, some x-rays and were going to dismiss him from care and say he was all cured. And the doctor got all like nervous and said, I've got to go get some different x-rays. We were like, oh, no. I guess it's supposed to be the last one. This is supposed to be the one that, where it's all done. And he goes and he starts getting x-rays and he starts putting them on the little thing there with the light behind it. And he said, see, this is the first one we took. Did you see the bone that was broken? This is the next one and the next one. He said, a broken bone is supposed to have a little fine line. Uh, as a doctor, he said, I'd always be able to tell that it was a broken bone. He said, but I'm looking at your son's x-rays we took today and there was no evidence at all that his back was ever broken. They said, we don't think he's going to have any negative repercussions from this at all. And that's exactly what happened. He was the captain of his football team, the captain of his basketball team, uh, is currently the high school principal for an alternative high school in Denver, Colorado, where he works with kids who are mostly from the juvenile delinquent system uh, that have been placed in this alternative high school. And a situation that at one point had no hope became one filled with incredible hope. When people say to my son, like, what's the worst thing that ever happened to you? He says, well, I was supposed to die, but God gave me hope. That's why he works at this alternative high school that he does now. He said, all these young people are not supposed to have any hope. He said, but let's give them the same hope that I got when I was four. Now, let me take just a moment. I don't have much time because it's a long, I could go on for hours about this, <coughs> this story. Um, but let me tell you about Barbara Lyons. That's the lady who hit us. Uh, of course, we didn't know it was her when she hit us. We found that out a couple days later. Uh, turns out she wasn't a stranger. She ran the store across the street from our house. We used to see her four, five, six times a week. She had lived a terrible life, had been drunk every day of her life since she was 13. You can do things in your head and imagine why a person at 13 would begin to drink. It wasn't because it was a good life. She had a really bad life. And she kept thinking to herself, I have no hope. I have no hope. I have no hope. I have no hope. When she came to in the hospital and found out that she had nearly killed the pastor and that the pastor and his, you know, think about this one village town, what one page street town. We all knew each other. Right? Actually, most of them, except for my family, was related to each other. All right, so, so here's Barbara thinking, I've nearly killed the pastor. Now I really have no hope. And if his son dies, why, God might just put me in hell today. No hope. She didn't go to prison. She went to prison for her crime. Um, I went to visit her in prison. To be honest with you, I didn't go happily. There was just a verse in the Bible that says go visit people in prison. I don't like that verse. I wanted to cut it out, but it was there. And so I went to visit her in prison. She said she was cold. I thought, well, I hope you're freezing in here. No, I didn't really think that. Well, I, actually, I did think I think that, but I knew my spirit wasn't supposed to think that. And so I told the ladies in the church, and they made her a quilt. 
They took it back to the prison and had to, you wouldn't believe the work you have to do to get a quilt through security in a prison. But uh, when you're the victim, you, they'll usually let you figure out a way to get it through. When she got out of prison, she was under house arrest for about 18 months. And uh, I called her parole officer and said, so I got like a little thing I want you to do for, for me here. And he said, what? Uh, I said, I want you to make it so she can come to church on Sunday. He said, you want me to do what? <laughs> I said, well, I, you know, it's like kind of fitting the crime, right? I mean, you know, let's, let's let her come to church on Sunday. And so she started coming. About four months into her experience, and she was wearing one of those ankle bracelets, so she had like a certain amount of time. When church was over, she had just enough time to get back to the house and be inside before it would start sending off alarms. So she came to me sort of in a hurry one Sunday after church and said, Terry, <laughs> she said, my life has had no hope. And then it got worse when I nearly killed your family. She said, but you have some kind of hope that I've never experienced. Is there any way? She said, I've got to get back to my house before this ankle thing starts beeping. Is there any way you could come tell me about the hope that you have in your life? And so that afternoon, the deacon and I, the deacon and I went to her house and surrounded by more liquor bottles than any bar I've ever been in, not that I've been in many, <laughs> um, she prayed to receive Jesus. And she was the first person I baptized after I was physically able to start baptizing again. And 20-some years later, she's still sober and still a member of that church. Because in Christ, there is always hope. You can give the Lord a hand if you want to. <laughs> now, when we think about hope, we think about the hope that we need in Christ we, we think about some of the, the struggles that we have, and I want us to look at a story. I've told you my story. That's sort of my personal story. Uh, but I want to share with you a story of some shepherds, some shepherds who also did not have hope in their life. And I want us to see how they discovered hope and see if perhaps that will help us discover hope in our own lives. You're familiar with the story from Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. It says, When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem, and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a feeding trough. And after seeing them, they reported the message to all who, who all they were told. All, they reported the message they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all of these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard just as they had been told. May God bless the reading of his word. As we look there at verse 15, we're introduced to this scene in which the angels had spoken to shepherds. Of course, I've kind of jumped in the middle of the scene because I knew my story was going to take a little bit of time. There's only so much time left to talk, so I don't want you guys to like, like be here all day. Anyway, uh, so, so I've sort of jumped in the middle of the story, but you know the story so well, you don't feel like it's in the middle, right? You know the angels showed up, and they began to sing, and they began to, to talk, and this host of angels sort of proclaimed the birth of the long-awaited Messiah to these shepherds. And I think that we look at that scene and we think, oh, isn't that wonderful? That's like a Christmas card scene. Or that's, like a, that's like a beautiful, like, you know, we've kind of we've made it all a pretty little scene. But to really understand the hope of the story, you have to understand the role that the shepherds played in the Middle East in the first century. Because from their perspective, the life of a shepherd wasn't as romantic and wonderful and sweet as we have made it. Now, there's some things that we know about shepherds. Uh, do you know that the Bible mentions shepherds over 200 times? Over 200 times. Now remember that, because that's going to be important in a few minutes. 
All right, now there's some things we know about shepherds that make sense. Like we know that shepherds take care of sheep, right? They make sure they have, you know, pasture, to, you know, where they eat and water to drink. We know they guard the animals, you know, from, or guard the shepherds, uh, the, the sheep from animals and maybe robbers. We know they count sheep. That's where that idea, I'm going to count sheep, comes from. Uh, because shepherds would count sheep. They would make sure they had, like, if they started with 40 sheep, guess how many they wanted at the end of the night? 40, right. Uh, if they had 39, there was a problem, and they had to go out and find it. And if they, had, if they were sleepy and tired, it didn't matter. They had to go find that sheep, or they were missing one. They would carry weak lambs in their arms. Sometimes maybe a, a lamb would twist its ankle or something on a rock or whatever, and so they would have to carry it back or whatever. Uh, we know these things about shepherds, even if we're not like, like animal people. We, we know enough about sheep to understand that. But did you know this? Did you know that shepherds seldom owned the flocks they watched over? And their pay was so small, it was unlikely they would ever own their whole flock, their, their own flock. So here they are, watching someone else's sheep, having to stay up all night out in the, the pasture to do it. Shepherds seldom owned the fields in which their flo flocks grazed. And it was unlikely they would ever own a piece of their own land. Shepherds often became the victims of robbers or wild animals, and therefore their life expectancy was short. Hardly anyone ever tapped into the Shepherds Pension Society because no one ever really retired from being a shepherd. Eventually, a robber would get you, or a bobcat would get you, or a bear, or something. You would fight for years to keep those animals safe, and somewhere in there you'd make a mistake, and you'd lose your life. So it was not something that people lived to be there weren't any old shepherds, uh, at least not very many. Because shepherds spent so much time away from the village watching the sheep, they seldom were able to complete their education. Now, this does not mean they were dumb, but it does mean they did not have any formal education. Uh, they didn't have any fancy degrees after their name. Uh, they didn't have all the, the, uh, the things that come with education. As a matter of fact, there wasn't much upward mobility for shepherds at all. <laughs> Pretty much if you started as a shepherd, you ended as a shepherd, with someone else's flock on someone else's land, usually in a not-so-positive way because you died in some way when you were 40 or 45 and weren't as fast on your feet as you were when you were 15. Being a shepherd in the first century was mainly the occupation of younger sons and slaves. Now, you remember back in those days, they didn't have the equality that we have today. So if you were the oldest son, I don't know if we have any oldest sons here, if you were the oldest son, it meant you inherited everything. If you were the oldest daughter, <laughs> sorry, wasn't a very equal society back then. If you were the second son, the third son, the fourth son, sorry. Maybe if your older brother liked you, he would like let you work on the farm. But if you were the young son, the seventh, eighth, ninth son, man, you were just going to be the shepherd. And you weren't going to get any, any education. You weren't going to get any land. You were going to get nothing. That's why the story of King David is so amazing. Because remember, he was the young son. Uh, and remember, the, the prophet said, well, don't you have any other sons? Because all the big strong ones had come through, and surely one of them was going to be king. And the fact that the little shepherd boy became king, that's what makes that story so unusual and so crazy because he was a shepherd boy. He shouldn't have been anything. All right, so it really wasn't the kind of job you want. We tend to make their lives sound romantic, but in, re in reality, it was a life of hardship. It was a life of poverty. It was a life with little hope, little hope of advancement in life, little hope of recognition little hope of long-term survival, little hope for anything great to happen at all. So we have made it sound like it's cool when we think about it from, from our perspective, but in reality, it wasn't cool at all. It was a life of despair. How would you like to have a job in which you knew that at some point, 
either a criminal would shoot you, well, I guess back then it would have been stabbing you because they didn't have guns, or you would be killed by a wild animal, that at some point you would die in your profession. Most of us don't have those kind of jobs, all right? Imagine having that kind of job, very little hope. And yet, it was to these men that the hope of the nations was first proclaimed. It was to these men that a host of angels was sent by the God of the universe to say, even though you think you have no hope, there is actually hope in a baby in Bethlehem. What an amazing thing for God to do. God could have sent this message to the kings in the castle. He could have sent this message to all the, the people with all the formal education, the ones who owned the flocks and owned the land. But God chose to go to those who had no hope and to proclaim to them the hope of the nations. Of course, what happened there in verse 15? <clears throat> in verse 15, as soon as the angels leave, the shepherds immediately decide to go check out what the angels had said. Hey, the, the, these, these, these ho uh, hopeless shepherds, think about what happened to them. <clears throat> Here they are in their, their, the field. They should like every other night. They're watching the sheep. And, oh, look, look, little, little Fido's running loose. Someone go get him, bring him back or whatever, you know. They're trying to do all this. And suddenly, this host of angels showed up. I don't know about you, but that would sort of, that'd get my attention, you know. <clears throat> I'm not even sure what an angel looks like. I know, again, we have an image in our society of what we've created, but we don't really know that's what an angel looks like. There was a host of them, and they knew that it was some kind of a God thing. And then these angels talk about this Messiah who they've been waiting for. Again, we look back to the Messiah. They were looking forward, hoping the Messiah would come. They realized that they were having an incredible spiritual experience. This was not a night like every other night. This was a God night. This was one of those God moments that rarely happened. <clears throat> this was one of those moments like when the doctor says, I don't believe in miracles, but if there ever was one, your son has experienced it. This was that kind of moment, a God moment. And they realized that this experience had the potential to change their lives. They realized that for the first time ever, they had hope. Because the God of the universe had noticed them. And the God of the universe had given them sort of the first-hand knowledge of the Messiah, who they had been looking for for so many generations. They realized there was hope. I think it's important to realize that the shepherds recognized that this hope wasn't just a human hope. This wasn't like a pull myself up by my bootstraps hope. This was a hope that was from the Lord. It says that right there in verse 15. They said, let's go to Bethlehem and see what's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They realized this was something. This was a God thing. This was a God moment. And they may not have had formal education. They may not have had all the certificates that some of us have, but they understood God when God did something in their lives. Here's a question we might want to ask ourselves. Do we recognize when God does something special in our lives? Do we see the God moments that he is giving us and do those moments give us hope? I think sometimes we are so busy going here and there and doing this and that that we miss the messages of hope that God is trying to give us. Now, I shared with you my story of, of hope in my life, of one time in which God showed us hope. And I know it's, a, it's an incredible story and it's a wonderful story. But I would dare say that if we begin to go around the room, I would dare say there are many people in this room who have a story. Maybe not exactly like mine. Maybe you weren't hit by a drunk driver. Maybe your son's back wasn't broken. But you have a story that was a God story 
where at least one time in your life something happened that you knew in that moment could only have been God and that that moment changed how you thought about God. And I think we probably have more moments than we realize. We're just so busy doing other things, we miss those moments. How sad it is to think that with all of our education and all of our possessions, and all the hope we have for our future careers and our future lives, that we miss the greatest hope of all, which is what Christ is trying to do in us and through us through these God moments in our life. Imagine how different life would be if we could learn to listen more clearly to what God is trying to say. And then like these shepherds, (coughs) imagine if we took time to investigate what God was saying so that we could really understand what he's trying to do in our lives. I was listening to a missionary from a foreign country talk one time, and he was talking about all the, the, the supernatural things that were happening in their particular ministry. And it was, it was cool to listen to it. But then he said at the end of his sort of presentation about his country, he said, I think God is doing those same things right here in America. He said, you're just too tied up in your busyness to see them. And I think he's right. I think we're just so tied up in our busyness that we miss the God moments that would fill our lives with hope. Well, look at verse 16. It says they hurried off and they found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the feeding trough. These shepherds hurried to find what the angels had told them about. Now, I find this interesting because these shepherds, I mean, I don't know what they did with the sheep. I don't know if they brought them with them. I don't know if they, like, one guy drew the short lot and had to stay with them. I don't really know. Uh, I don't know what they did to satisfy their, I'm sure they had a supervisor or a boss. I don't, I don't know that these guys, these are like people with like no real power or influence. But when they saw God doing something, they said, we've got to go right now and we've got to figure this thing out. And so somehow, without power of schedule and control, they somehow found a way to go right then and investigate what God had done. That's a good word for us. <laughs> Because I find it interesting how much of a hurry we're in. Man, we're in a hurry to finish school. I don't know if you guys are, any of you guys are in school. So I'm, I look back, I don't know why, for some reason when I was in college, um, I just didn't want to be out of college. I just wanted to do it. So I crammed four years of college into three years. I look back and I think, why did I do that? Like, what was the point? So that I could get a job and start paying taxes one year earlier? I, I don't know why. But at that moment, it seemed so important. And so I finished in three years. It's, it's kind of crazy. But we're in such a hurry to finish school, find a job, make money, get married, buy a car, find the best deal online. Hey, I was, at, I was at looking at someone's computer the other day. Uh, they had like 40 screens, like, like, like tabs open. I said, what is this? I'm trying to find the best Black Friday deal online. And I said, well, like, what's the difference? Between, well, this one's $10 cheaper than that one. How long have you been doing this? Three hours. I was like, dude, $10. I just, that's, that's $3 an hour. Just pick one, you know. But, but we're in, we spend all this time doing all this stuff. But when it comes to spiritual things, whoa, whoa, wait, wait. suddenly we don't have any time. Suddenly all we have is excuses. We have excuses for why we can't pray and why we can't read the Bible and why we can't study something that we've always wondered about that has something to do with God, why we can't go to church. We, we find all these excuses for why we can't focus on whatever it is that God seems to be doing in our lives. You know what an excuse is? This is tweetable, so write this down, all right? You know what an excuse is? An excuse is the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. It's a skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. 
which sounds really good on the outside, but everyone knows, we and everyone else knows, it's not really the, the, not really the real reason why we're not doing whatever it is that we've made up an excuse for. We find all kinds of excuses to not experience what God is trying to do in our lives. Imagine if like these unlearned, hopeless shepherds, imagine if we took time to think through spiritual matters. I think we'd be surprised how much hope we would have if we knew that we were following God's plan for our life. If we knew that the, the job we had and the house we bought and the marriage partner we picked and the, I don't know, the, the, whatever it is, if we knew that somehow that was really God's plan and it wasn't just our own human ingenuity, imagine how much more hope we would have. And I bought this old house. When I live in Vermont, I bought this old house. It was an old farmhouse built in 1848. Uh, it had lots of charm and character. Those are realtor code words for needs lots of work, all right? It seemed like everything was broke all the time. But you know, it didn't discourage me because we bought that house not because we were trying to get charm and character. We walked into the kitchen, and we realized it was the first room that we walked into. It was a huge Vermont farm kitchen, and we thought we could start a church here, and we did. <laughs> and so we had hope. Because for us, the house wasn't about the furnace and wasn't about the electrical problems. It was about what God could do with that house. And it was exciting what God did with that house. Some years later, we sold the house at a terrible loss. I think I told you guys about that a couple weeks ago. From a financial perspective, it was a disaster. But I'm still filled with hope. Because I think of the people who came to faith sitting on the couch in that house. You see, when we start thinking about all of these things from God's perspective, it does something inside of us, and it gives us hope. But when we get too busy for God, oh, brothers and sisters, <laughs> we're just too busy. If we get too busy for God, we need to cut something out of our lives, and it should not be God's thing to get cut out. I am amazed at how quickly Christians will cut out the things of God when their schedule gets tight. And Christians will cut out their, their giving to God when the budget gets tight. And people will cut out their discussions about God when the conversation gets a little bit tight. I am amazed at how quickly Christians will just sort of forget that they're Christians when it's convenient to not be Christians. Let me give you some homework. You ever have homework from church? Here's some church homework. This week, spend some time making a list of things that we can let go of in our life. Some things we're a part of that maybe they're not bad things necessarily, but they're things that are sucking up a lot of time, and because of that, we don't have the place for God in our life that we should. Let's make a list, and let's consider if we will make God the priority that he's supposed to be, what will we get rid of? You say, oh, I don't think I like to think about that. Ah, it's not comfortable, is it? But all oh, the hope it will give us on the other side, the hope that it will give us to have Christ in the place in our life that we need. Don't cut out the one thing that will offer lasting hope which is a vibrant faith in Jesus Christ. You know, when I was laying in the hospital bed in one hospital, my son was in a hospital bed in another hospital in that first four days when we didn't know if he was going to live or not. One pastor came by, old fella. Oh, he was out of date on everything. He still used the King James Bible to preach from, okay? Wherefore art thou? I don't know what that means, you know. She, she, these and thous and shouts and shouts and don'ts. I can't even talk, I can't even talk like that, you know. Uh, he didn't know what a PowerPoint was. I'm not sure they barely had power in their church. He was the most irrelevant pastor you've probably ever met. But he came to visit me in the hospital, and I was all broken up in a mess, and my leg was in traction, and 
pieced together, and I had bolts sticking out of it. It was a crazy thing. I've still got some of those bolts. They're in the drawer. They're like that long. Anyway, it's amazing. I've got stuff that held me together. And he tried talking to me, but honestly, there wasn't much that he could say. I mean, it was just a mess. We didn't know if my son was going to live or not, and so he just began to sing. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. He sang all four verses, and when he got done, he just said a prayer, and he walked out. And I was reminded, so long as I have Jesus, I have hope. So long as I have Jesus, I have hope. We're trying to find hope in all the wrong places. Let's not cut out the one thing that will give us hope, which is our vibrant faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, brothers and sisters, God does not want our leftovers. He wants our best. And the reason why some of us, our faith is not as vibrant and strong as it ought to be is we've been giving our our God the crumbs of our life. And if you give God the crumbs, guess what you get? You get a crummy faith. But if you give God the best, then you get a faith that is life-changing and that is filled with hope. When the shepherds took time to investigate what God was looking for, they found the hope that they were looking for. Uh, They found Jesus. They found his whole family. It was exactly what they needed to have hope. And when we find time for the Lord in our own life, we will find the hope that we're looking for through our faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17. It says, and after seeing them, they reported the message they were told. So they went and saw. They saw Jesus. They saw Mary. They saw Joseph. And then they they had to go back to the sheep. Out there somewhere were some sheep. I don't know if they were running loose in the field or what, but they had to get back to the sheep. And as they were headed back to the sheep, they saw people. And they said, you wouldn't believe who's over there in that manger. Would you believe there's there's a baby over there wrapped up in some some, strips of cloth? It's like like he's the Messiah. We we, we saw angels. they, they, they They were amazing. They sang. Anyway, they found hope. When the shepherds found hope they were looking for, they couldn't help but tell others what they have experienced. And when we finally discover hope that comes from a wonderful relationship with the Lord, we can't help but tell other people. Matter of fact, I would go so far as to say that if we're not excited about sharing what God is doing in our lives, then are we actually allowing him to do anything significant in our lives? Think about that for a moment. Because if we allow God to do something significant in our lives, how can we not tell people about it? And if we find it easy to keep quiet about our faith, I'm guessing that we have quenched the Spirit. Now, we might have done it unintentionally. We might have done it without meaning to. But we've done it. Because if the Spirit is bubbling over inside of us, we can't help but talk about it. We can't help but share what God is doing in our life with someone else. We must tell the message that we have heard, the things that we have seen. Look at verse 18. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said. Even though these shepherds may have not been been considered great or influential under normal circumstances, they were unlearned, uneducated men. They were the slaves. They were the younger sons. They were not people of importance. They were people that most of society ignored. But in that moment, when they told the story of what they had seen, it was so fantastic that everyone listened and was amazed at what they said. We might think that our lives don't count for much. There are moments when we think, how did I end up here? Listen, I remember when I, I, when I went to this little village in Vermont, this one paved street. I do remember about the fourth or fifth day being there thinking, God, what have I done? 
what have I done with my family? I've brought them to this godforsaken place. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a city person. I've got to watch my time here. Here's just, just one more little funny story. I'm a city person. So I went to this little village, and I like to walk in the mornings. <clears throat> so I was out walking one morning, and, and I'm, I'm like from the city. For me, wildlife is like a squirrel, okay? Maybe a chipmunk, okay? So, so I'm out walking, and there's this old milk cow that has gotten loose from the Debervilles field and is standing in the middle of the road. So I get to it, and I don't know what to do. I mean, I don't know, do, do, do cows eat people? I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think a chipmunk is like a wild animal. This thing is a cow. So I'm like frozen in fear. There's a cow on the road. There's a cow on the road. People are driving by in their pickup trucks, and they roll the window down. And if they were Catholic, they said, Father, what's wrong? And if they were Protestant, they said, Reverend, Reverend, what's wrong? I don't know, there's, a, there's a cow. What do I do? And they would just like laugh and roll the window up and drive away and leave me there. Anyway, it took me about 20 minutes to realize that cows are not dangerous. They don't, the bulls are, I did learn this, bulls are dangerous, but the old milk cow is not. Anyway, that cow got out a lot over the next eight years, and I just learned to kind of, hey, and go on around the cow. Anyway, but, uh, you know, I remember living in this little village thinking, God, what have I done? I've gone to this God-forsaken place in the middle of nowhere. What have I done? There were moments in which I wondered if my life was being wasted. Is that for Barbara Lyon? Ask her if you think it's a waste. A woman who had been drunk every day of her life since she was 13, who had no hope, who now is a sister in Christ. Ask the 23 members of her family who over the next 20 years came to Christ one by one by one. They weren't all necessarily people that I got to lead to Christ, but one by one by one. People with no hope, who listened to a message of hope that was so fantastic they could not deny it. We might think that our lives don't count much. We might wonder sometimes, what have we done? Some of you, I know some of you are from here. Some of you moved here from somewhere else. You moved here from Florida, and the winter is coming, and you are thinking, what am I doing here when Florida is nice in February? You know why you're here? Because God wants you to share the story of hope with someone. And those people will listen, and they will consider what you have to say because they will see the hope that you have in your life. People may want to argue with us about the Bible or doctrine or theology, but they cannot argue with the testimony of our experience with Christ, of the hope that is within us. We must learn to share hope that God is giving, with us, uh, giving us with others on a regular basis. It can't be something we just every so often share. Let's learn to share hope all the time with people. If there are people in your workplace who don't yet know you are a Christian, I would say, what's wrong with that? Figure out how to declare yourself a Christian. Now, I know there's rules in the workplace. You can't just like hold up a sign that says turn or burn, get sanctified or french fried. All right, I get that. I know there's rules, but there's always a way to proclaim your faith. There's always a way. We must learn to do it on a regular basis, and people will be amazed at the hope God has given us if we'll just start sharing it. Well, let's look at one last verse, verse 20. It says, The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard, just as they had been told. For the last couple of weeks, I've been meditating on this verse a lot and just kind of thinking about what this means. These shepherds, they had to return to their regular life. Now, they had, they had heard choirs of angels. They were the first ones to meet the Messiah. They got to be the first ones to proclaim the gospel as they were running through the streets after they got back from the manger. But guess what? <laughs> the next night... <laughs> They had to go sit on a cold rock in the rain in someone else's field and count someone else's sheep and wonder if they were going to get killed by a bobcat that night. 
They had to return to their regular life. They couldn't live on the mountaintop in that experience all the time. This is important because when we have deep spiritual experiences in our own lives, we still have to return to the normal world. You know, you go to some cool conference, you go to some big concert, you go to some retreat or something, and you feel like closer to God. You think, oh, I, I feel like God all around me. And then you got to go to work the next day, and your coworker's still 20 minutes late, and the guy who had the shift before you didn't do what he was supposed to do, and you still got this jerk in the next cubicle that you have to deal with, and it's like, ah, it's like real life is back. Yeah. Though the shepherds had to return to their normal life, they were changed men. They had to return to their normal life but they would never be normal again. They would always be different. Now, I know the Bible doesn't tell us, but I like to use my holy imagination to figure out what these shepherds must have been like. I don't know. I'm guessing that once Jesus got his uh, Instagram account going, they clicked follow. I'm guessing that when he did the feeding of the 5,000, I'm just guessing they showed up and said, I want somebody. Hey, I, I knew him before he was anybody. Before he had 10,000 followers, I knew him. <laughs> Somehow, I know the Bible doesn't tell us this, but just, just work with me on this, all right? Just, just use your imagination a little bit. I can't believe they just went back and looked at sheep and never followed Jesus ever again. That's just unrealistic. They must have been changed forever. Brothers and sisters, there's a lesson for us. We need to learn to take the hope that we find in our spiritual experiences out into the real world. We have a world that needs that hope desperately a world filled with anxiety and depression a world filled with all kinds of struggles uh, i was reading some stuff this week about the suicide rates among young people it's incredible you know what they need they need hope and we have it are we just going to hold it to ourselves and say this is mine 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 or are we going to give it away the shepherds would never again just be simple men watching their fields at night they would forever be looking for ways to discover hope in everything around them and they gave God glory for everything they experienced. I believe we can constantly be filled with hope if we keep looking for God to do extraordinary things in our ordinary lives. I'm thankful I've never had to engage in automobile accident evangelism again. I'm glad it was only a one-time experience in my life. Thankful for that, because I didn't enjoy that, that version of evangelism. But I found a whole lot of other ways to be involved in evangelism in my life. I found all kinds of ways to experience the hope of God and to give that hope to someone else because of a moment when I was changed forever. So let me bring all this to a conclusion so I can wrap it up here. How can our relationship with Christ help us find hope in a hopeless world? First, we must realize that the message of hope is proclaimed to those who lack hope. If you're here this morning and you just feel like you're in a moment of hopelessness, maybe something with your marriage, something with your job, something with just your personal life, you just feel like, man, I just feel, I just don't have the hope that I once had. I don't have the hope that I want to have. Realize the message of God's hope is for you. It comes to us in our most hopeless moments. Number two, we discover hope by taking time to listen to what God is saying and then investigate what that means in our lives. We have to take time. You know what one of the greatest things that happened to me during that time when I was recovering from that accident? It was nine months of not being able. First I was, couldn't, I was in bedridden, and then I was in a wheelchair, and then on a walker, and finally with a cane. It took m nine months to be able to walk again without any assistance. It slowed me down, and that was actually really good for me <laughs> because I tend to run about 120 miles an hour all the time. 
and having months to think and pray and seek God was a powerful thing in my life. If you're feeling hopeless, take time to listen to what God is saying and investigate what that means in our lives. Number three, share the hope we discover with others. Let me tell you something. There's there's just something about taking the hope that God has given you and giving it to someone else. It is a powerful moment to share with someone else the story of God's hope in your own life. And then number four, have a sense of expectation that no matter what, there is always hope in Christ. No matter what, there's always hope. And if we can live with that sense of expectation of where will God show me hope next, wow, that's a life worth living. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? Maybe you're here today and you're struggling because you do not feel the hope that you want to have. Perhaps you've not yet become a Christian and you could right now express your hope in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Maybe you're here, you're already a Christian, no question about that, but you've just allowed the busyness and the stress and the anxiety of life to force you sort of into a, I don't know, a hopeless moment. And I pray that right now as you're sitting there just quietly, that you would just talk to the Lord. Ask Him to show you how He is at work in your life. Ask Him to fill you with hope. This is the moment when the Spirit is speaking. Will we hear what He says? Will we investigate what he's trying to do? And will we be filled with hope? I pray, Lord, that in this moment your Holy Spirit might be our counselor. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and that you would show us how you are at work in our life in in so many different ways and fill us with incredible hope. I pray, Lord, that as we sing this closing song that your Spirit might minister to us And if we have business to do with you, we might pray, we might might seek your face, we might do whatever it takes so that we might discover the hope that you are trying to give us in this very moment. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.